This is Bob Cudmore. The Historian's episode with Leader Herald columnist Peter Betts begins in just a few seconds. You can access our podcast on the website bobcudmore.com, also SoundCloud, and The Historian's now heard on RISE, WMHT's radio service for the blind and print disabled. A GoFundMe campaign continues to support the podcast. Please make a donation at GoFundMe.com slash The Historians or send a check to Bob Cudmore, 125 Horseman Drive, Scotia, New York, 12302. The Historians Podcast. Great stories from our past. And now, on with the show. Joining us on The Historians is Peter Betts. Good afternoon, Peter. Good afternoon, Bob. How are you doing today? Okay. Peter Betts retired from a professor's post at Fulton Montgomery Community College, previously Fulton County historian, and for many years has written a history story column every other Monday for the Leader Herald newspaper in Gloversville. Today we're going to focus on several columns Peter has uh, written over the years. And you're starting off with a couple of columns that you wrote about black Civil War veterans, uh, beginning uh, with a gentleman named Jeremiah Nutt. Who was he? Well, Jeremiah Nutt uh, was uh, a gentleman who was born in Lancaster, Virginia in 1843. And we know a lot about him, but the one thing we don't know, of course, is probably the thing we'd like to know, and that is how did he get all the way from Virginia up to Montgomery and Fulton counties? <laughs> that, part, mm-hmm. that part remains a mystery. Uh, but uh, he was a very popular local gentleman. In, uh, let's see, 1863, he enlisted in the 20th New York Colored Volunteers Regiment in New York City. That regiment was forming at the time. Uh, and, uh, you know, it took a good while into the war before uh, Lincoln and, uh, and others could convince the government to uh, fund colored troops. So these colored regiments didn't come in until around 18, late 1863 or 1864. Uh, anyway, he uh, mustered into that regiment and uh, remained with it throughout the life of the regiment, which concluded in October of 1865. Mm-hmm. And then he came back uh, to uh, the Fulton County area? Well, he came, he came to uh, Montgomery County first. Uh, I'm reading along with my notes here. Um, see, he first appears in the 1870 United States Census as a day laborer living in Glen, mm-hmm. uh, with a wife and two children. And then in, uh, 1876, for the first time, he appears in a newspaper, and it was kind of a humorous thing. It was in the Kanjahari Radi, and, uh, they said, Jerry Nutt had a serious fall last week, but Jerry is too tough a nut to break. <laughs> I see. Yeah. So I'm assuming from this that even at this point, if the newspaper was going to put a little humorous blurb in about him, he already must have been a well-known person around the area. Mm-hmm. What did he uh, do? That, hmm? well, well, we'll, we'll right. get on to that, uh, if I may. Uh, he shows up next in the 1880 census, uh, residing in Fultonville. Uh, and uh, then in the 1890 Civil War Veterans Census, 
there was a special census that year for some reason for for Civil War veterans. Hmm. And uh, he's recorded at that point and living in Johnstown. And we don't know what he did uh, af- exactly after he uh, left the Army and into the 1870s, but by the mid-1880s, he is appearing regularly, uh, being mentioned in the Johnstown newspapers uh, for being a chef. Hmm. And uh, his specialty, apparently, was uh, organizing and putting over large banquets. And in the wintertime, he would, uh, of course, cater these things indoors at various big events uh, between Amsterdam and Johnstown and Gloversville. And in the summertime, his specialty was outdoor banquets. Hmm. And there's quite a few notices in newspapers about this. And whenever uh, a clam bake, for example, was advertised, if he was one of the chef, he was the chef in charge of it, uh, they would always advertise that uh, it was, you know, brought by Jerry Nutt. Uh-huh. And I bet he, he served also operated from- a restaurant in, in uh, Johnstown in the 1890s. Huh. You say he ran a restaurant or, or he cooked at a restaurant? He ran he ran a restaurant in Johnstown called the Manhattan Restaurant at uh, 126 West Main Street uh, during the 1890s. Uh, but his main forte, as I'm, I've, I've told you, is uh, doing these big banquets. If I can give you a quote here uh, for the August uh, 1905 Fulton County Republican. It said, several organizations that have announced clam bakes to be held next month with Jerry Nutt as chef will be forced to change their plans since Jerry is engaged as a chef at the Sturgis Hotel in Lake Pleasant for the remainder of the season and has told friends he will be unable to attend to clam bakes back here. Mm. So obviously he was very well known. Yes, and what I was trying to interject was sort of the Peter Betts sort of thing. He probably served meals from soup to nuts. <laughs> I bet he did. Yeah. I bet he did. But clambakes seems to be the, the the main thing. And of course, clam clambakes uh, were a big deal back in those days, more than more than they are now. I think. Yeah. Uh, anyhow, uh, there's lots of testimonials. He was also a very avid fisherman, mm-hmm. and uh, and he served as guides to fishermen. And there's another one, for example, in June of 1898, the Daily Republican said, Mr. T.E. Gilmore, prominent Johnstown dry goods merchant, came to Fonda on a fishing trip. Well-known clam bake chef Jerry Nutt was his guide and oarsman, and of course he had a good time. Ah, so I guess it was a uh, real part of the social scene in the summertime. Yeah, yeah, he seems to have been. And in the winter, as I said, he's also recorded doing large indoor banquets in uh, all three of the uh, area cities. Uh, and he did have a Civil War, he did achieve a Civil War pension, and it wasn't an ordinary old age pension. He actually, he had a, he had a serious case of asthma, and I've actually gotten the pension papers uh, from um, the Albany Archive, and uh, his pension was granted because of this acute asthma. It couldn't have been very large, but it was a pension anyway. So the point being, he was recognized as a legitimate Civil War veteran. Huh. Um, and did he have difficulty uh, getting that pension, or is that the other story we're going to hear? That's that's the other story we're going to hear. Uh, we can finish off Jerry, but before I do finish off Jerry, I have to tell you one more thing about him. Uh, 
Ryan Bartlett, whom I know you're familiar with, Fultonville uh, historian, uh, sent me a photograph of uh, Jerry Nutt's grave marker and told me where it was, which is in the town of Mohawk Evergreen Cemetery. And the back part of that cemetery, as there are in many of those older cemeteries, there is a circular uh, grave site with a, a statue. In this case, it's a cannon. Sometimes they have cannons, sometimes statues, uh, with Civil War veterans uh, buried around it in a circle. And he is he is buried there, and I went in there to take a fresh picture of the gravestone, and I looked at it and I photographed it, and I got home and I looked at it again, and I said something isn't right here. Uh, and what what the problem uh, was with the thing is, uh, what it says on the gravestone is that he died March eighteenth, nineteen seventeen, at the age of seventy four, and I said, well, duh, hang on a minute here. I have a Morning Herald article dated August 2nd, 1917, well after March, five months later, in fact, reporting Jerry not very much alive and cooking for the Johnstown Boy Scouts at Pine Lake. Right. So I said, okay, something's wrong here. So then, luckily, I, I got a hold of the December 31st Morning Herald article on Johnstown activities and Gloversville activities. In the old days in newspapers, you know, at the end of the year, they would do a year's resume of active, of, you know, things that happened during the year and people who died and stuff like that. And I came across uh, Jerry Nutt. And what, what happened here was uh, in this paper, it lists a separate section of Johnstown's 1918 influenza epidemic deaths. That was the big year for the influenza, okay? Mm -hmm. And this shows that uh, what happened was uh, Jerry did not die on March 18th, 1917. He died on March 17th, 1918. Okay. Glad you got so that straight. the gravestone is wrong. Yeah. And he being a veteran, I, I pointed out to Kelly Farquhar and Ryan that, uh, you know, you could actually... Um, petition for a replacement gravestone for him because they do that really? for veterans huh, how about that? but yes he got his pension and uh well, that was well and good unfortunately the other black gentleman uh uh didn't and uh, his name was surrey herring surrey joseph herring actually mm -hmm. and he was born in wilmington north carolina in 1844 and he lived longer than Jerry Nutt. Uh, he died in, at his Cedar Street home in Gloversville in, at uh, age 89 in 1935. Mm -hmm. Now, his parents were slaves, and the, the slave owner's name was Herring. So they did as many slave families did. They took that as their family last name. Uh, and he was a household servant. And uh, his master, before the Civil War, had rented him out when he was a pretty small boy uh, to the Wilmington, uh, North Carolina hotel owner as a waiter. Well, in 1864, or very late in 64, federal troops invaded Wilmington uh, in February, actually, 65. The officers took over the hotel. Okay, so there's all the Union officers in the hotel, and there's Surrey Herring waiting for them. And Surrey apparently was an admirer of good horses. 
and uh, knew where all the best horses were stabled in the whole territory around there. And he probably was waiting on some of these guys, and they were talking about where to find good horses. I'm just guessing, but it makes sense. And he probably piped up and said, hey, I know where there's some first-class horses. So what happened? But they all settled up, and they got Surrey settled up to take them out and find out where the best horses were, which was fine, except that they... Just, uh, ran right into a uh, group of Confederates, and they had a big gunfight, and uh, Suring was wounded and uh, lost his mount and had to find his way home back to the hotel. And uh, it wasn't a very successful experience. But uh, in the process of all this, he endeared himself to uh, the officers uh, in the regiment, and they suggested he enlist. And that was... Uh, a fortunate thing in a way. He enlisted, <laughs> excuse me, he attached himself to the 115th New York Regiment, and uh, particularly to a man named Captain Henry Shaw. Now, Henry Shaw was one of the Mayfield Shaws and came back, of course, to Mayfield after the war. <laughs> and uh, he took on uh, Surrey as his orderly. And when the war ended, and uh, Shaw came home, uh, Surrey Herring came north with him. And he worked on his farm for quite a few years. And eventually he matriculated to Gloversville and became the, the porter of the Alvord House Hotel, which was one of the biggest hotels in uh, Gloversville. And uh, anyhow, you know, everything went fine. He was a very popular man. Uh, in fact, another, he's also mentioned in a number of newspaper accounts. Uh, when he died in 1935, the Morning Herald said, uh, hundreds of residents who moved to this city in the heydays of the 1880s and 90s remembered Joe as being the first person to greet them as they alighted from the train to the station. He was a familiar figure riding on the rear steps of the Albert House bus. For in those days, the bus, after delivering guests to the hotel, was used as a taxi carrying other passengers to wherever they wished to go. Huh. So he was a well-known man and probably would have spent his life doing what he did there, except, of course, the Albert Hotel burned, made a great big fire, and that's another story. But after that, he went and worked uh, at another uh, Gloversville Hotel, the Windsor, and he also did freelance work. Uh, he had contracts with a number of downtown merchants, washing their windows and doing janitorial duties and keeping their, their uh, coal fires up at night and things of that sort. So again, he was a well-known man. And every year, and this is according to the newspapers, every year when there was a GAR, uh, Grand Army of the Republic Veterans Muster, uh, which went on really until I think the very late 20s around here. Uh, he always went to these, and he was always accepted as a member of the 115th Regiment, mm -hmm. which is fine, except for one thing. Uh, Captain Shaw, at some point, should have put in uh, a letter uh, or some sort of documentation as to Herring's having served in the Civil War. And when Herring was fairly old and he applied for a pension, he discovered that unfortunately uh, Captain Shaw, who was already dead, had never done such a thing. 
and there was absolutely no record of, of his uh, in Washington, you know, of his being uh, involved with the, with the regiment. So uh, everybody locally, all the Civil War veterans locally, acknowledged his, you know, uh, presence in the regiment. But when they tried to get him a pension in 1925, uh, it just it just wouldn't work. Uh, it says, and I quote the newspaper here. Efforts of the Gloversville chapter of the American Red Cross and individual members of the GAR to secure a pension for Surrey Herring of Gloversville have failed so far, according to Mrs. Arthur Fry of the local Red Cross chapter. Herring, who is also well known in Amsterdam, is advanced in years and is reaching a time when his earning power will be insufficient to support him. Efforts to secure for him a small pension have been made. Uh, there developed various peculiarities in, a, in his record which indicate that while he served, there was never an actual, he, he was never uh, listed as an actual member of the U.S. Army. So therefore, the War Department could not recommend him for a pension. So uh, he never got one. No, he never, and he never did. Uh, I wonder, were you able to uh, turn up an obituary? I mean, how did it go for him at the at the end there? Well, they, uh, it's I'm backtracking here. Uh, Ubiquitary tells us a few things about him. It says he was an active member and elder of the AME Zion Church. Uh, let's see, he had a wife and several children, and uh, they referred to him as the Lord of the Punch Bowl because apparently whenever there was a, a major uh, activity or something for example uh, there's a there's a newspaper notice uh, from 1884 there was a hospital benefit to build a hospital held at the eccentric club and this is just one of the many notices he received that says surrey herring lord of the punch bowl was very attentive in his courtesies to all the thirsty dancers <laughs> so he was a man about town, just as uh, uh, Jerry Nutt was. Yeah. But he never was able to get that pension. No, no, he didn't. Kind of reminds me, and unfortunately I, I'm having a lapse of memory as for the names, but there's a story out of Montgomery County that I think I got from Kelly Farquhar, but I've used it uh, myself about the uh, a black veteran who's buried in uh, Green Hill Cemetery in Amsterdam, he was eligible for the Medal of Honor, I want to say, and he didn't get it until a white uh, veteran from Fort Plain petitioned for his Medal of Honor. Apparently they were in the same military engagement in uh, North Carolina, but once uh, the soldier from Fort Plain uh, convinced the authorities that he should get the medal, well then they gave it to the uh, uh, man from Amsterdam. And he was still alive at the time, I hope. Yes, he was. Although I think he then he did die, uh, you know, soon thereafter. Right, right. I did not know that story. I'll have to look that up too. Peter Betts so, with the stories uh, from history. Peter writes a history column every other Monday in the Leader Herald newspaper in Gloversville. Retired from Fulton Montgomery Community College and also previously Fulton County historian. You do have uh, another tale for us today, something completely different. It's about the uh, Sackendaga Park. 
Maybe we should, uh, well, um, let me ask you, what was Sackendaga Park? Well, it was Sackendaga Park. They they had different names for it, but, and, and for example, in newspaper accounts, it would often show up as being the Paradise of the North or something of that sort. The Sackendaga Park was established by the founder Johnstown Gliversville Railroad, and this was not an uncommon thing. Many small railroads did this kind of thing when they were connected to or close to a potential recreation area. They would buy the land up around the place, and in this case, of course, uh, the lake went right down through there. And uh, they established uh, not only the amusement park for the summertime, but uh, summer cottages. Uh, they had the large Sackendaga Park Hotel. There was a wonderful uh, area in the center of it. There was, there was a stage. Uh, area for band concerts, all kinds of wonderful things back in the simpler times. Mm. Yeah, it was a really a really a big deal. Weren't there like several hotels or was just that one main one? There were several. There was High Rock Hotel also, but that wasn't part of the FJ thing. That was actually across the road and up on the hill uh, by an extremely large rock and it was referred to as High Rock. Mm. That burned of course. Everything seems to burn sooner or later. <laughs> yes, it does. Although they, they also had trouble with water. I mean, I don't want to get way ahead of the story, but Sackendaga Park disappeared when they uh, built the Great Sackendaga Lake or Sacond Great Sackendaga Reservoir was called the beginning. Unfortunately, the amusement area certainly disappeared. Most of the housing, of course, remains, as you know. Um, plus, of course, they had the actual full-size baseball field and stadium, uh, which was all flooded and gone. Mm. So, uh, yeah, maybe the point is you should always think ahead before you put your amusement park in the wrong place. <laughs> well, that's true, but it's hard to figure what people will do. Uh, but you have a, a tale about the Sackendaga Park uh, that it had an unusual resident. Well, yes, uh, it probably had a number of them, but in this case, this one was a four-footed resident. Uh and this, of course, goes back to the time when the amusement park was active in the summer. Uh, for quite a number of years, they kept a bear at Sackendaga Park in a big cage. And uh, I've been able to trace it back as far as 1900. Uh, the first notice of it shows up. Well, I suspect they probably had them sooner than that, longer than that. But what they did, one of the things, the bear was in the cage, of course, in the summer and it amused the children. But the bear was one of the few creatures that lived there all year round and was taken care of by Mr. Page, who was the landlord of the Sackendaga Park Hotel, and actually, I believe, owned at least one of these bears. And so, of course, they let the bear stay there. Who wants to move a bear around if you don't have to? No. So he had a big cage, and uh, they used him uh, rather than a woodchuck. They used him uh, to predict whether or not they would have six more weeks of winter. Now, that is always fixed as Candlemas Day, the 2nd of February, as you know. And every year we hear about Punxsutawney Phil, and that's well and good, except uh, they didn't use woodchucks up here. They used bears. <laughs> and uh, so this one was uh, uh, always made the newspaper on the 2nd of February. And I'll give you an example. The Rome Daily Sentinel of February 3rd, 1900, said the following. The legend of bears came out come out to see their shadow on the 2nd of February 
was effectively dispelled today by the bear at Sacandaga Park, owned by Harry Page, as nothing could induce the sleeping animal to wake up. Those who were confident the bear would come out and who backed their confidence with money are much wiser. Uh. However, in 1901, they had better luck. Mm -hmm. The uh, Cooperstown uh, Otsego Farmer, which was a weekly, uh, had the following article. It said, the Sacandaga bear made its appearance. Bruin was in excellent health and frolicked and disported himself in the sunshine like a youngster who has the best side of a game of marbles. The Gloversville leader thinks the bear had a pretty good time of it. He had no overcoat to, to wear, no heavy suit to purchase, no coal bill to pay, gas wasn't even considered, and dumping ashes and where to dump them never worried him for a second. <laughs> and well, it goes on, if you want yeah. me to. <laughs> there you go. Well, I tell you what, it, it, I think we've established that the bear was at Sacandaga Park and they used him uh, like they, they do the groundhog uh, today, but uh, it sounds like it could have been a more dangerous enterprise trying to wake up a bear, although I believe groundhogs have also been known to uh, bite folks and be a little feisty when they're when they get woken up there. Um, well, for quite a few years, Bob, this showed up in quite a, in a lot of the area newspapers, and uh, they'd start maybe around the 30th of January or so. And the first article would be, "Will the bear at Sacandaga wake up? Will he not?" You know, yeah. uh, this went on every year. Now, I don't want to put Peter under too much pressure, but we we have about four minutes left, Peter. And uh, mm -hmm. Peter's uh, column is well known for covering true crime in uh, the Fulton uh, Adirondack area. And you've got a 1936 murder at a garage on Route 30 that I believe you said is one of the shortest murder stories you can tell. You know, I am nervously going through my papers here to find that one. Here we are. Okay. Yes, uh, this was in 1936. And on uh, Route 30, what we now call Route 30, which our locals still call the Perth-Amsterdam Road or Amsterdam-Perth Road, depending which direction you're going in. Mm -hmm. On July 25, 1936, an Amsterdam iceman named Frank Jablonski made a stop at a garage a mile north of Amsterdam, probably to buy some gas. This station belonged to a man named Anthony Coppola, who was a 40-year-old father of six people. And Jablonski walked in, not seeing him around, and, and uh, walked into the station, and there was uh, a poor Mr. Coppola dead on the floor, having been shot. And, uh, of course, there was an immediate uh, investigation of the whole business. In those times, which you probably don't remember, although I do, the old uh, local troopers station was at Tribes Hill. So uh, uh, Tribes Hill Sergeant... Uh, Edward Updike was put in charge of the investigation. And one of his friends was another local person, uh, Bernard Robert Shaw, one of the one of the Perth Road Robert Shaws, you know. And uh, he contacted Updike, and he had said that the night before, he'd been driving on his way to Amsterdam, and he had a big, dark sedan in front of him that slowed up and seemed to be casing uh, uh, Coppola's uh, garage. And... Uh, kept going a little bit and went a little further and turned around and went back and he kind of thought it was suspicious and when he came back about two o'clock in the morning he also noticed lights were still on so he was concerned you know with uh, what 
might be going on with Mr. Coppola, and he told the officer immediately about these these men. Well, to make a long story short, Updike must have been a good detective. He went through all of uh, Mr. Coppola's uh, receipts, bills, and, you know, papers, information, and he came across two people that he thought were suspicious. Uh, one of them was a, uh, a running account by a 19-year-old from uh, Brad Alvin named Volker Loveless. And uh, they went to question him and couldn't find him anywhere. And uh, finally discovered he was in the Saratoga County Jail for a speeding offense. So they said, okay, we don't have to worry about him for a while. Then they went looking for his brother. And they found his brother in a CCC camp. Uh, there was a CCC camp in uh, a Speculator. Mm. And he was he was up there. And uh, they got the two of them down to the tribe civil uh, station. They rearrested the other levelists when they got out of jail and uh, questioned them. And they confessed to uh, to the murder. And uh, they got $29 from it. Mm. So, uh, and oh, another rather funny thing. While they were there, after they'd murdered him, somebody stopped at the station and honked his horn for gas and oil. And uh, one of the Loveless brothers went out and filled his tank and gave him a quart of oil. <laughs> well, on that chilling uh, note, Peter, we're just out of time. Peter oh, Betts yeah? has been joining us, uh, regaling us with stories from history. He does a history column every other Monday for the Leader Herald newspaper based in Gloversville. Peter, always a pleasure. You have a good day. You too, Bob.